This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Is work killing you? Coming up, workplace stress expert Dr. David Posen will try to answer that question and give us a prescription on how to deal with it. We're all stakeholders, and everybody can make a contribution to help to fix this problem. Plus, it's that time of year when Canadians turn their attention to all things financial. Today, Zoomer Magazine columnist Gordon Pape will join me to give us his tips on investing, saving, and making your money last. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. When people are in nursing homes or retirement homes, We certainly expect them to be well looked after, especially in an emergency, and obviously the system failed in this case. That's Susan Eng's take on the news that an 87-year-old woman at a Toronto retirement home died after waiting three hours for an ambulance. Staff at the Leaside home had called 911 on December the 20th, reporting that she was suffering from abdominal pains. It was at 3.15 in the afternoon. Seven ambulances were dispatched and redirected, and by the time one arrived, the woman had no vital signs. Toronto paramedics are blaming a staff shortage for the delay, and now there are concerns that it could happen again. This week, Pope Benedict's announcement that he will resign shocked many people around the world. But experts on aging say it shouldn't. They say that as people live longer, the physical and mental challenges of old age are catching up with more of those in positions of power. Many are choosing to step down instead of continuing in jobs traditionally held until death, like U.S. Supreme Court justices. Since 1955, 21 justices have retired and only one. Former Chief Justice William Rehnquist died in office. The Netherlands' Queen Beatrix, who is 75, announced last month that she will pass the crown to her son in April. Here's a story that should make you thankful for Canada's health care. A study shows that many hospitals in the U.S. can't or won't provide straightforward price quotes in advance of many medical procedures. And when they do, the prices vary dramatically. Take, for example, a common procedure for Zoomers, a hip replacement. A study published online in JAMA Internal Medicine found estimates for a standard hip replacement at top-ranked U.S. hospitals ranged from a low of $12,000 to a staggering high of 126000 And finally, actor, writer, and comedian Steve Martin is a first-time father at the age of 67. This week, he revealed that his wife, 41-year-old Anne Stringfield, gave birth to the couple's first baby. It had been a tightly kept secret. The baby was actually born back in December, and he gave no details like the child's sex. 
life is finally imitating art. Martin, whose career dates back more than 45 years, has played a father in movies such as Parenthood, Cheaper by the Dozen, and Father of the Bride. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Were you in the stock market last year? If you weren't, you may be regretting that. But many Zoomers who've been through the 2008 financial crisis and the tech crash at the beginning of this century are worried about losing their savings. With interest rates at record lows, the question is what to do next. I talked to investing guru and Zoomer magazine columnist Gordon Pape. Between you and I, I'm expecting some kind of a correction in the market, if only because it's been um, so strong. And we're now seeing uh, the Dow approaching record territory. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some pullback coming down the road. But nonetheless, it looks as if stocks are definitely going to outperform bonds this year. And uh, that's not very good news for people who are timid investors. And we have a lot of those uh, who are still feeling the psychological scars from the crash of 2008-2009. Well, right, and a lot of people also are in their Zoomer years, so they don't really have a lot of wiggle room. What do you say to them? There are a lot of people who, even with these desperately low interest rates, still uh, invest in those types of interest instruments to keep their money safe. Well, certainly I would not lock in for a, a long term. Uh, I would avoid five-year GICs, for example, the quoted rate at the big banks is somewhere around two to two and a quarter percent. You can get a little bit higher than that by negotiating if if you're a good customer, but that's still not a lot. If you look out five years from now, you're looking into early 2018, and it's almost a dead certainty unless the world goes into a depression that interest rates are going to be higher then. If uh, you really are keen to uh, put safety above all else in terms of your priorities, go for a one-year, two-year GIC or for a short-term bond fund or something like that. But quite frankly, uh, I think that people need to lay aside this, uh, in some ways, irrational fear of the stock market and look at some of the really good blue-chip stocks that are out there. For example, BCE. Nobody expects BCE is going to go belly up. It's not going to happen in our lifetimes. And here's a stock that pays over 5%. Well, you can get a a good company like BCE with a 5% yield on the stock and the dividend tax credit as a bonus. That looks a heck of a lot better than a GIC paying two and a quarter. Well, that's right. You recommend dividend-paying stocks, and I guess we should remind people that even if the stock price goes down, you're still getting that dividend unless they chop the dividend, of course. Well, that's right. And, you know, one of the things that people seem to forget is that when we had that crash in 2008, 2009, Even the banks uh, went down, the good utilities, Enbridge, all of those went down. But they've more than recovered since then what they lost. My advice is, look, if you've got a good stock and a good yield, put your money into it, take the dividends. If the market goes down, you just ride it out. Now, you are recommending against money market funds. That used to be a favorite for parking your money while you were figuring out which way things were going. That's right. It used to be that uh, money market funds were, were really big, but those were in the days of high interest rates. With the interest rates so low today, money market funds are yielding virtually nothing. In fact, some money market funds are yielding nothing literally uh, because of the fees which are attached to them. If you want to hold your money in cash, which a money market fund really is, then you're far better to go with one of the high-interest savings accounts 
that are offered by especially the smaller financial institutions such as uh, ING, which is, of course, now owned by Scotiabank, uh, or President's Choice, which is a CIBC affiliate and uh, companies like that. Now, another interesting thing here, uh, you do mention those so-called risk-free products, those hybrid products the banks are offering, saying that your investment is guaranteed. You get your money back. That's the big plus in all of this that attracts people in. They have these various notes which guarantee your principal so that, you know, even if the stock market doesn't go up, you still get your money back in the end. Well, believe me, investing, say, $5,000 for five years of zero return is not a great deal. I've looked at a lot of these things. Occasionally, I've found one that's made some money for investors. Most of them do not. They're tied to an index or they're tied to a basket of stocks or they're tied to the performance of a specific mutual fund. And so everything depends on timing. For example, if you go back five years from now, that would take us to the beginning of 2008. Well, what did the markets do in 2008? They tanked. And so now when your note is maturing today, even though the markets have come back, your return is probably going to be minimal or nothing. Now, just switching a little bit to a slightly other subject, the RRSP deadline is upon us for younger Zoomers. For older Zoomers, they're going to have to convert at the age of 71 to a RIF. What advice do you have for them? Well, the uh, difference between the RSP and the RIF is one of priorities. The RSP is really the growth phase of your investing, and so people should be a little bit more aggressive in their RSPs. Once you've converted to a RIF, your priorities become, number one, safety, and number two, liquidity. That is, that there's cash available to pay out of the RIF because uh, after the conversion, you're required to take out a minimal amount of money each year. What I advise is that um, if people do have a financial consultant, they sit down with that person and go over in detail uh, what it is that uh, they want to do in terms of transforming their RSP to a RIF. And in fact, that shouldn't happen at the last minute. Ideally, that'll happen two or three years before the transition actually has to occur so that there's some time in order to gently do that move from one type of investment to another, take advantage of the market opportunities that may present themselves and so on. Okay. Thank you very much. Great advice. Well, you're very welcome. For more of Gordon's advice and tips from other financial experts, check out Zoomer Magazine's March issue, the annual money issue, on newsstands now. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Does your job stress you out? It's a growing problem in today's increasingly demanding workplace. In just a moment, Dr. David Posen will give me his prescription for workplace stress. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Does your boss keep telling you to do more with less? Are your deadlines unrealistic? Or maybe office politics are getting you down? Dr. David Posen has a prescription for workplace stress. I sat down with him in my workplace, the studio. People can cope with stress to a certain extent, but if the workplace is generating stress faster than people can dissipate it, then the workplace needs to do something to start changing the culture and the system itself. It's a systemic problem. It needs a systemic solution. Every workplace has some people who are stressed and some people who are not. That's a very good point, and we all have different levels of tolerance. 
I'm not advocating a stress-free workplace or some, you know, laid-back spa or something like that. But the other piece is that the workplace is getting more stressful and more and more people are falling off, even the ones who are resilient, even the ones that have been able to handle it in the past. What are the triggers of workplace stress? So volume of work is one. The second is velocity. The pace of the workplace has speeded up. Email, deadlines are tighter and so on, and people are running faster and faster to try to keep up, and it's daunting for so many people. And the third is abuse. That relates to not just difficult people in the workplace, but people who are frankly abusive, harassing, you know, bullying, that kind of stuff. It goes on the workplace far more than I realized. I hear this more from my patients than anywhere else. And I'm always astonished. It's bad enough that it's happening. But what I can't figure out is why do they get away with it? Why does this continue? And I think in most places they know who the bad actors are and they're just not dealing with it. And, and the misery that that causes is not only huge and substantial, but one abusive person in a workplace, a bad boss, for example, can really create havoc for you know, dozens of people who work under that person. How do you deal with office politics? Well, I think, and by the way, I think a lot of this stuff is going to be inevitable to some extent. So we're, we're not exactly. talking about some totally stress-free zone or anything where all of this is eliminated. But I think the more overt and obvious aspects of it need, first of all, to be labeled. People need to start looking at this and stop pretending it's not there. We know these things are happening, but nobody seems to want to address them. So the first thing is awareness, acknowledging and admitting that it's happening. And then to start raising people's consciousness and to start, first of all, pulling out some of the people who are the real perpetrators and the bad actors, but also, you know, just as they've done with diversity training and, and the whole issue of sexual harassment and so on and raising people's awareness about what's acceptable and start to having these conversations about what's really happening, the effect it's having, the cost, because by the way, it's not just a cost to people's feelings or their health, it's costing the bottom line. Does it ever come down to a question of maybe the people who are feeling so stressed just are not entirely qualified for the jobs they're trying to do? I get patients telling me, I'm in over my head. And so you get people promoted into positions that they're not only not qualified for, but then they're not given the proper training and ongoing training. And if you then add to the fact that those people are now stressed and they're not behaving very well or handling it well because they're just trying to cope and keep their head above water too, uh, it's a bad mix. You say the first step is to identify what your personal stress triggers are. Right. So how do you do that? Just getting people to recognize that when they say work stress, it actually may be coming from only one area of their work. They may feel, for example, that they're being asked to do too much work on weekends. Um, it may be that they're being asked to write reports that they don't feel comfortable for or to use technology that they don't have the uh, expertise to use. And to kind of narrow it down and then say, okay, what can you do about this? Sometimes it's workload, sometimes it's other people, and, and then when you get it really in focus, then you can start to address it. If it's other people, what do you do? Sometimes it's just avoid those people if you can, but sometimes it's a matter of realizing you've been taking it personally and it's not personal because they're doing it to other people too. And sometimes just talking to other people and realizing you're not alone is helpful for people. So it depends on what the circumstances are. What if, if it's can, your boss? Talk to your boss candidly, openly, and say, 
This is what's on your mind. This is what you're struggling with. And see whether you can develop some kind of, of rapport or understanding or whatever on their part. And sometimes the boss will say, you're kidding. I didn't realize any of that. Another strategy I sometimes use with people is I ask them, is there a way to build bridges? Sometimes a difficult boss is just somebody you're misreading. What else to boil it down? The workplace is getting more stressful. People are really struggling, and, and we're all stakeholders, and everybody can make a contribution to help to fix this problem. But it's not going away. It's getting worse, and we need to talk about it. Okay, well, big mountain to climb. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> it's us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Libby. Dr. Posen's book, Is Work Killing You?, is published by the House of Anansi and available in bookstores. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Tonight, live from Miami Beach, the Ed Sullivan Show. On this weekend in 1964, the Beatles made their second appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. In just a moment, we'll return to one of the songs they performed. It was also the number one song on the Billboard charts. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, Cinderella is on Broadway. In my the music was written by Rodgers and Hammerstein for a 1957 TV special starring Julie Andrews. Cinderella is in previews at the Broadway Theater. To Los Angeles, where Linda Vallejo's art show makes pop culture icons look Mexican. Mickey and Minnie Mouse, Venus and Cleopatra all take on the characteristics of Mexican culture at the George Lawson Gallery. And in Tokyo, see works by one of Japan's most noted contemporary artists. Ida Makoto's art is on display at the Mori Art Museum, high up on the 53rd floor of the Mori Tower. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. Here are four of the nicest youngsters we've ever had on our stage. The Beatles! Bring them on! This weekend in 1964, the Beatles made their second appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. It was just a week after their first appearance, the middle of a three-week stint on the program. The show was broadcast from the Deauville Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida. Over 2,500 screaming teenagers were in attendance, and the crush of people inadvertently delayed the performance by blocking the band's route to the stage. Ed Sullivan didn't realize this was happening, and he began to introduce the Beatles before quickly bailing to a commercial break. Security guards had to wedge the band through the crowd, and just as the commercials were ending, they dashed up on stage. Seconds later, they were introduced and began their set before a screaming Miami audience. It opened with, She Loves You, and also included, This Boy, All My Loving, I Saw Her Standing There, From Me to You, and the song that was at the number one spot on the Billboard charts. It also happens to be one of the best songs to round out Valentine's Week. I want to hold your hand.
That was the Beatles live on Ed Sullivan with I Want to Hold Your Hand from their famous appearance at the Deauville Hotel in Miami on February 16, 1964. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks so much for joining me today. Please come back next week when my guest, Dr. Ben Goldacre, will fill us in on why there is so much information we should have but don't about many of the common drugs we're taking. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snyder. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandrill. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.